when I was in seminary, I really focused on trying to develop my servant's heart. And one of the ways that I did that was that I was going to a seminary that had about 5,000 students. The chapel only had 1,800 seats. So on many occasions, I exercised my servant heart and gave up the seat that I would have occupied and gave it to somebody else. And I went to the library, or more often than not, I went to the cafeteria. Because when in those days, going to school in Texas, the cheapest thing on the menu in the cafeteria was biscuits, gravy, and coffee for 99 cents. What a deal, right? You know, so I used to frequently take that chapel hour and go over to the cafeteria and gather together with some of my seminary buddies and and we would uh, have biscuits, and I don't think it was great for my arteries, but it was good for my pocketbook, if you will, for my wallet. You know, this coffee and, and biscuits and gravy for 99 cents. And, and we would chit-chat about everything that was going on in our lives and that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, but often the conversation really steered towards what we were really studying about. I mean, we were studying the Scriptures and, and think, studying church history and systematic theology and all the skill sets we were going to need to be able to serve the body of Christ, but, but often the conversation focused on the church. You know, that's, that was going to be our primary place. That, that, we, we were there to serve the Lord by serving the church, if you will. And so we would kick around a lot of stuff. And, and those conversations sometimes go through fads, right? I mean, I think we live in a time now where most of the conversation centers around what does it really mean to be a biblical church? You know, and there was a time just before that season where we really talked about, you know, that the conversation was really kind of dictated more about some of the church growth things and that kind of thing. But, but when I was in seminary, the focus, again, this was the late middle 80s. We were approaching the beginning of the 21st century. And a lot of it was, what does a church need to do to get back to being a first century church? What do we need to do to really become like the New Testament church? You know, and so we would have these conversations over our biscuits and gravy and coffee for 99 cents where we would talk about what does it really take for the church to be a New Testament church. And, and often we focused on things like we did just not too long ago in our study through the book of Acts. You know, you'd be looking at characteristics of the church and their unity, their, 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 the power that they had in prayer, their passion, their willing to sacrifice, their rapid growth, the fellowship and connection and unity, and all those kinds of pieces that went with it, this boldness and etc. And we'd process all of that stuff, and we'd think about what it was like, and I remember having conversations about, well, what was the best image for the church today? Back then they thought about being the, the light of the world or being a spiritual temple, you know, where each of us is being built into a spiritual house kind of idea, or you know, we're, we're ambassadors for Christ, all those kinds of imageries, and we try to pull up our, our 20th century kind of stuff. You know, we, you know, those back in the days when the show MASH was really big. Any of you guys ever watched that? The 4077th, you know? It was, it was kind of like some of the shows we have now. They had their, the new one that got released, and then there was like 150 reruns that went on through the course of the week, you know, that kind of idea. And so we sometimes we explore what it really meant that, you know, maybe the church should be like a MASH unit, you know? We're, we're out of the place, we're at the front lines of the spiritual warfare and we're a place where where people can come and find healing in the midst of their brokenness not a bad image sometimes again we were sitting in the cafeteria right so we think about it as the church should be like a soup kitchen you know where we take the food if you will the spiritual food out to the front lines of those who are really the most hungry spiritually you know and sometimes in and this was one of my favorite we we kind of thought about the church as a, as a lighthouse or, 
Let me use the imagery of a magnet. You know, Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. And how do you kind of do that? And we would explore all this stuff and et cetera. And, you know, we had great fun. And the next thing you know, our, our coffee would be empty and my fifth cup probably. And all the biscuits and gravy would be licked off the plate and it'd be time to go on to our next class. And the thing we never really got around to talking about very much, you know, we, th- we, we spent all this time talking about what it would be like to be a New Testament church. But what we often didn't really talk about was the fact that you can be just as biblical talking about the New Testament church and you can be talking about a place where they celebrated some of the most gross immorality that was ever created or or practiced on the planet. Or you could be talking about a church that had such great division, it was such a dishonor to Christ. You know, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, you know, you're saying you're a Paul and you're a Apollos. And you get all these things. So, you need to put all that stuff aside. You know? And, you know, sometimes they come together for their, their family meals at church. And on one side of the room, you know, you'd have one family or a group of families that, that are having surf and turf with caviar. I mean, they're just pigging out and they got the best of everything. And then right across the small hall, there'd be a cluster of people who are all sharing together a moldy leftover PBJ sandwich, to use a kind of imagery. They, they had nothing to bring. And there was no, there was just a callousness to the, to the there wasn't any family. And all of these, you could talk about all of these things, just like in the book of Revelation, where it says you've forgotten your first love, or you've become lukewarm, or you tolerate heresy, and etc., All of those are imageries that we can use to speak about the New Testament church. Now, I think that's important for us to kind of draw into focus. And we've been working through just a quick two-week series called Get Church. Do you really get church? And we're doing so as a part of our fall launch emphasis because next week we're really kind of of launch our fall experience. And the prevailing assumption in all of that is that the church matters. This church matters in the kingdom. And so last week we were speaking, spoke about how the church should offer value to those who are outside of the church. You know, we had this imaginary conversation that you might be having with a friend or a colleague at work or something. And you say, you know, they're trying to find some life answers. And you say, well, well man, you should really, you know, come to my church. And, and they'd say, well, why? What what am I going to find there that I can't find anywhere else? And we process through some of that. But today I want you to, for us to to focus on the role that we have in this whole journey of the church. And you see, sometimes I think that, that we get so focused in with all the challenges that are going on around us in our own culture, we get so focused in on on what the church believes that we lose sight of the fact that right alongside of that, as critically important as who we are as we do what we believe as a church. You know, you could go to the New Testament and you can see all the great characteristics of a church, but you can also see all of the ugly characteristics that can emerge in the church. And in many ways, that you know, there, there was a similarity, a same starting point, but the difference between the two was who they were as they did what they believed. 
And so today, I, I want to speak to us for just a little bit about you and I being who God wants us to be and making the church great for Christ. I acknowledge that it's really a work of God. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. But God in His sovereignty has chosen somehow or another to use people like you and I to be a factor in the nature and the health of the church. And so I, I want to follow some advice I used to get from my grandmother. <laughs> you know, when I, when I was little and you know, she'd hire me to work or we'd be up at the, the cabin that she owned. And, and I think it was advice I used to get from my grandfather, but I was so young when he passed away that she kind of picked up the mantle. But she'd, she'd, there were a couple of things that she used to say to me. One time, you know, times I'd be carrying stuff in from the car into the cabin and I was carrying so much stuff that it's falling out. She says, you're being lazy. And I'm thinking... What do you mean I'm being lazy? Look, that's because you don't want to make two trips. You're carrying too much stuff the first time, right? And the other thing she used to say to me was, you know, when you do get, start on a project, like your grandfather always used to say, do the big part first because it will make you feel like you're making progress. For example, I just got done painting our living room. So her, her advice would be, roll first, cut in last. You, you know, because I, I cut in first. I felt like I was working forever, and you're looking at it and say, it doesn't look any different. You know, and then you start rolling and it goes. And so today I want to look at the big part. I want to look at the hub from which all the other pieces flow in terms of asking this question of who are we supposed to be as we are the church in the world? And I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, as many of you are today, you'll find our text on page 858. 858. Let me bring it into a little context for us. Okay? First of all, Jesus is already in the last week of his life. Chapter 11 includes the triumphal entry. So he's moved into the city. And chapter 12 is really a time when when he is in interaction with those that are unsympathetic to him. In fact, you might say that they're actually his opponents. They're trying to find a way to get rid of him. And the whole passage, if you will, beginning in chapter 1 and flowing down through the passages, verses we're going to read today, focuses on how Jesus is indicating to them that even though that they're religious insiders, when it comes to the kingdom, they're on the outside. They may be religious insiders. These are the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and etc. But, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, what God is doing in this world in the person of Jesus Christ, they're on the outside looking in and it's Jesus' invitation for them to get connected. So he starts out with the parable of the vineyard owner. Quick story about where he, a, 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 a gentleman businessman builds a vineyard, rents it out to some who are going to run it, and, and goes away on a long trip, and he sends servants back periodically to receive his payments, a part of the produce, the harvest, and they keep just mistreating the servants. And so finally he sends his son, and, and they kill his son, saying, no, well now the vineyard will be ours because he is the heir. And Jesus is using that to show how the religious leaders, how the nation has really responded to the 
servants of God that have come and what they're going to do now to the fact that His Son has come. Then there's the whole question of whether or not we should pay taxes to Caesars and they're trying to figure out how the spiritual life fits with the worldly life and all those kinds of pieces. And then there's a question about the resurrection and it's just a ludicrous question and Jesus says you just really don't understand at all what this is all about. And then finally there's a guy that steps forward and, and, I, and I think he's genuine. He's sincere. You know, he, he knows that Jesus has some kind of insight, some kind of connection, some kind of authority to speak from God in a way that nobody else has. And here's a guy who's a spiritual insider, a religious insider. He's a scribe. He's, he, he, he's, he's a master of the law. But, but he just senses that maybe something's just a little bit missing. And because of that, he comes to Jesus in the midst of all of this and he asks these questions. Follow me if you will, as we pick up in verse 28. Now one of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, in other words, aha, this guy's got something to say, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Use my grandmother's word, if I'm going to focus on the big piece, what is it? (laughs) I want to make sure I don't miss out on it. and Tell me what's most important, because that's the one thing I want to make sure I don't fail. And this is most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were expected to repeat that three times a day. It comes directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. And then he goes on to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than the knees. I, I think what Jesus is suggesting there is that these two commandments are kind of like the hub and everything else that God asks us to do flow out from those. So if you think about a, a bicycle that has a center wheel and you've got these flimsy little spokes that go out and hit the rim, what gives the rim strength in the spoke is the solidness, the strength of the hub. And all of this is built on these two. There's no other greater commands. There's nothing else. This, is, this is the part that matters most. And if you get this right, everything else will flow from it. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him anymore. Now, boy, there's just a lot we could do with this, right? But let me just kind of zero in on a couple of things today in in the context of what we're talking about in terms of preparing ourselves to be the church as we, if you will, relaunch what we do as a church in the name of the Lord. And, and here's, here's the, first of all, I, I want to remind you what biblical love is. What does the Bible mean when it uses this word love? And we get focused a lot on the different words, you know, eros and the word phileo, which means brotherly love, and, and agape, which means a beneficial or a blessing kind of love. It's a love that's self-originating and, and directed out. The way that God loves us is not because we're lovable, but because who of He is, He loves us, and that's a, that's a beneficial giving kind of love. But, 
But I, I, I want to draw it back even a, a different layer. I think in our society today, culturally, we think of love as a feeling. You know, I, I, I've done two weddings in the last three weekends. I did one yesterday afternoon, did one the Friday night before Labor Day weekend. In both cases, the bride and groom, as they're standing hand in hand, looking at each other in the eye, and they're sharing their vows, tears are coming down the corner of, of their cheeks, you know. And, you know, one of the guys is sucking on water because his throat, you know, he's just choked up with the whole thing. He's emotional because he's in love and he's making the most important human commitment he's ever going to make. And it was vice versa. With, 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 same with, with the, the, the brides involved. And we often think about love as an emotion. But biblically, love is a lot more than that. It, it definitely is an emotion. But it's also an action. Love isn't just something you feel. Love is something that you do. And let me, let me give you, just to kind of pull it out just a little bit, you know, if we, if we love, but it doesn't have any impact on what we do, it's kind of like having faith and no works, right? And how does the Bible describe that? Is that, is that what God celebrates and praises? James says it's useless. Useless, you know, and on the other end, if we have works, if we do all these actions, but we really don't have love, right? We're just like the religious insiders in this text, right? I mean, they go to the temple over and over again, they give all their sacrifices, they're pursuing all the right things, they don't want to take one extra step on the Sabbath, they got all the actions down, but. But it, it, it's, it's an outer thing. It's not an inner thing. It doesn't come from the heart. It's not out of a devotion to God. It's not out of a response to God's love. It's a, it's a determination that they just do in themselves. In some ways, it builds up their own pride and independence because see all the stuff I can do for God, but it's not really driven out of a devotion for God. In the Scripture, when it talks about love, it's, it's, it's not just an action and it's not just a feeling, but it's, it's, a, it's a feeling, a devotion, a connection with God that produces an action in our lives. And, you know, there, there's ways in which you and I can read our Bibles and we can pray and we can come and show up and help on church work days or maybe even change some diapers in the nursery and we can do all that stuff. And we can be a long, 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 long way from God because it's just all action and it doesn't really come from the heart. But on the other end, some of us can say, well, I really love God, but there's no life transformation. There's no change. There's no change in priorities, values, commitments, actions. There's none of that happens. That's not what the Bible talks about is love either. If you and I are going to love God and love our neighbors, it's a, it is not only an a inner quality, but it's an outer action. And those two things go hand in hand. And if we're missing one or the other, we need a change of heart. And when you and I think about being the church and getting church, we need to make sure that we are people who are of biblical love. I want to say just a word too about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anybody got that mastered yet? <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's a lot of terminology and it gets repeated here. 
it comes up numerous times in the New Te- in the Gospels as Jesus is either giving that an answer or a rich young ruler responding to him. It goes back and forth. What in the world does that mean? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me just take a quick stab at it, and and I'll try to break it down a little bit. But but when I think about when I try to take love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and try to put it in 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 more user friendly terminology, I think of it as all of me. Loving all of God all the time. It's all of me loving all of God all the time. Say that with me. All of me loving all of God all the time. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit. You know, when, when you and I, you know, we, we think about who we are, all of us, you know, we're heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we could break all those things out into various pieces and what they kind of meant and the various flavor and understanding today. But, but let me just kind of break it. Sometimes, some of us, we want to love God with our minds. We're, we're really into studying the Word and we, that kind of stuff. And we learn all the Bible history and et cetera. But, but there really isn't any passion or heart or commitment that comes from behind it. We're, we're students of the Word, but we're really not members of the family, if you will, who celebrating God. And there's other ways in which some of us want to love God with our hearts. We want to come and we want to sing and we want to be happy and joyful. We want to talk about how God, good God is, but man, we just don't want to put any time in really studying the Word, right? You know, I, I don't you know, you know, we just got to put it aside. I don't know what it means. And we, just put, and we don't want to engage our minds. We don't want to do any work ourselves. And the list could just go on and on. I think sometimes when you think about this word strength, I mean, it, to me, it's a, a part of what that indicates is the willingness to say, you know what, I'll lead. It may be the smallest ministry in the world, but I'll lead. I'll take the initiative. I'll do something. And you could just kind of, but all of us, it's, it's, it's our will, it's our mind, it's our emotion, it's our priorities, it's, it's all of us. And then when we think about all of God, you know, to me, I... You know, there's parts of God that are really easy to love. Who doesn't love God being a great physician, right? We can pray for this little boy by the name of Joel who's in Burkina Faso and his blood sugars are going up and down and he just can't get it. We can pray for the great... It's easy to love God that way. It's easy to love God as the great provider. You know, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, that kind of idea. And we, we can celebrate that piece. We, we love God as Savior, right? That's not the hard part, but when we... Flip the page, and God says, I want you to love me as the person who steps into your life and disciplines you when you're off track. Yeah. Right? I mean, we're not near as excited about that stuff. Or when God steps in and says, you know, I'm Savior, absolutely, but I'm also Lord. So that means what I say goes. (laughs) Sometimes we don't like that so much. You know, Steve preached out a parable a couple weeks ago where, you know, Jesus says, you know, who, who of you has a servant that you send out to the, into your fields to work all day, and when he comes in, you say to him, oh, sit down, let me serve you a nice meal. You, you don't do that. You, you sit in your recliner and say, hey, thanks for working today, but go in the kitchen and make me dinner, will you? You know, and, 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 and so we don't like that aspect of it. You know, that we get this sense that, boy, I've done all this stuff for God, and somehow he owes me, and all he's asking me to do is do more. Where's my time on the beach with my lemonade. And some, you know, and, and, and some there's parts of God that we struggle to love. And I think you can self-process all the time, right? 
It's really easy on days like tomorrow, like yesterday for Luke and Juana to celebrate God. It's a whole lot different story than maybe when their first child is born and it's got some physical ailments or some other issues and you work through those challenges. It's a lot harder sometimes to love God and the things that are happening. Why didn't you prevent all this stuff? Boy, and then we could spend some time talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, there's just this we being unconditionally committed to loving those who are imperfect so that somehow God can use us as agents of grace to make them perfect in Christ. And all the pieces and all the messiness that can go with trying to love a lost world. I could go on and on and our time's running away. And I want to stop. I, I want to I offer one challenge this morning and I'm going to ask you to make one commitment. So, you know, some of you have been going on. Just, just dial back in for I, I want to challenge you with one challenge and ask you to make one commitment. Here's the challenge. I, I challenge you to fall in love with the church again. You know, the Scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for it, right? In Ephesians chapter 5. So you know, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for it. Well, if Christ loved the church, boy, I tell you, as Christ followers, we ought to love the church. And let me be specific. I'm not asking you to, if you're a teenager, I'm not asking you to fall in love with just the youth group. I'm asking you to fall in love with the church. I'm not asking you just to fall in love with your life group. I'm asking you to fall in love with the church. The all of the church challenge you to fall in love with the church. Here's my commitment. And let me, let me preface this by saying I'm going to use the word member loosely. Because we have a lot of folks who attend with us regularly. They're committed to Hope Chapel. They haven't formally taken on the responsibility of being members yet. So I'm going to use that term loosely this morning to, to include everyone who believes that Hope Chapel is their spiritual home. And here's my challenge to you. I'm challenging you to be a better church member the next 12 months than you have been the last 12 months. I'm challenging you to be a better church member, tender, participant, <laughs> committed person, whatever term you want to use. I'm, I'm challenging you to be a better church member the next 12 months than you have been the past 12 months. Maybe you'd serve more actively. Maybe you'd share your faith more aggressively. Maybe you'd give more financially. Maybe you'd pray for the church more fervently. Whatever. Maybe you just would commit yourself to growing spiritually, whatever. But to be a better church member. And using this theme of love is both a feeling or an inner choice or a quality, an inner commitment, but also an action, I'm going to ask you to take some action on that this morning. I'm going to ask you to grab your connection card. In your, and, and, if, and if you're, because I think it's, it's powerful sometimes to, to put even symbolic action in connection with an inner choice or commitment that we're making. And, and I'd love for you to just, to, if you're willing to commit to being a better church member the next 12 months, I'd love for you just to put your name on this card and just write on it, you can count, God can count on me. In just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're not going to take our offering. Our rushals will wait until we're done and we move into our next phase. But, but as we're singing, we've got these funny-looking baskets up here. We're going to go back to our Rwandan friends. Whenever they take their offering, they just put the baskets out front. And I'm just going to ask you, as you're prepared, just to come down and put your card 
come forward to the proverbial altar. Like you're coming to God to make a thing. There's a basket here in the middle we can use, so we can use all three aisles. I'm just going to ask you as we sing, if you're accepting the challenge to love the church, and you're willing to commit to being a better church member this next year than you have this past year, I'd love for you to reflect that through putting your card and solidifying that commitment before God by the action of placing your card in the basket. Let me just lead us in a word of prayer and then we'll, our worship team will come and lead us in our, our song as we sing and make our commitment. God, thanks for loving the church. You know, before, before the very first molecule was spoken into existence, you planned to create this incredible divine human institution that we know as a church. God, thank you for the blessing it's been to me. This church, all churches. God, we understand that the church before you, the church in you, is the greatest hope of the world. And that we have a role in it. So God, we seek today to love the church more and to be better at that love as we take these steps. Thank you, God, for being with us in this journey. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, I invite our worship team to come and lead us in our closing song. And as we sing, I invite you as you're ready and feel led to to come and place your card in the basket. And afterwards, we'll take our offering. I don't want anybody to feel pressure like they have to come up or whatever. So let's just stand and sing to the Lord as we conclude our service.